If you have a love for literature or movies or the theater, if, if you took uh, a literature course in, in college, you may recall that those who study the great stories, great literature, have identified 12 character archetypes that seem to appear over and over in all the great stories. Of course, they have different storylines. Of course, they have different names. But these same archetypes repeat in most of the great stories. The 12 are the lover, the hero, the magician, the outlaw, the explorer, the sage, the innocent, the creator, the ruler, the caregiver, the every person, and the jester. Now we have in this series, This Is My Story, been treating the Bible as a great story, and it is, it's an epic story. And probably if we took the time and applied these 12 archetypes, we could start to identify who plays these different roles. But the Bible uses a a different set of categories, a, a different set of titles, like patriarchs. We were introduced to patriarchs like Adam and Eve, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca and others. Priests like Aaron and Samuel, judges like Deborah, kings like David and Solomon, and prophets, which we'll be talking about today. Each one fulfills, plays a different function in this story we find in the Bible. The patriarchs were really just heads of family, and as head of family, made the rules for the family, spoke for the family, led the family. The priests served a a unique kind of ritualistic function. They represented the people to God through prayers and rituals and sacrifice. They were all from the tribe of Levi. The judges had a different role. They settled disputes between individuals or families or clans and occasionally led the people in battle. The kings, as we talked about last week, served as the shepherds of Israel. That's what they were called, the shepherd kings, leading, protecting, guiding, helping the people of Israel to be uniquely the covenant people of God. Well, that brings us to the prophets. Prophets like Samuel, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Micah. Amos, and others. The role of the prophet is to represent God to the people, to speak on behalf of God to the people. And so in that way, they're sort of the opposite of a priest. The orientation of a priest is to stand with his face to God, bringing the offering from the people to God. Whereas the orientation of a prophet is to face the people, with one ear to God speaking to those that God wants to hear a particular message. In our scripture reading today, we heard the call of the prophet Jeremiah. When the call came to the young Jeremiah, he responded as most do in the Bible. He objected, (laughs) not not me, God. But God responds, uh, no, you're the one I've chosen. Jeremiah 1, 6 and following, 
Ah, Lord God, I don't know how to speak. I'm only a child. The Lord responded, Don't say I'm only a child. Where I send you, you must go. And what I tell you, you must say. Then the Lord stretched out his hand, touched my mouth, and said to me, I'm putting my words in your mouth. Did did you hear in that the stress on the words? He says, "I'm, I'm too young to know what to say. And God says, don't worry, I will put my words in your mouth. That's what a prophet does. A prophet speaks on behalf of God. Well, what what might we expect a prophet to say if a prophet speaks for God? I remember when I was in seminary at Duke, my Old Testament professor defined a prophet as one who comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. Well, it's true. Isaiah 40, verse 1 says, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. You remember it from Handel's Messiah. But that's kind of an exception. More often than not, the prophet afflicts the comfortable. The the message often from the prophet are words of condemnation, warning, a demand for change. For the most part, prophets were rarely comforting. In fact, God in this call to Jeremiah says, This very day I appoint you over nations and empires to dig up and pull down, to destroy, and demolish, to build, and to plant. I I was thinking this week about King Ahab when he encountered the prophet Elijah. I I suspect he spoke for most of the kings and queens of Israel and, and many people in power when he said to Elijah, oh, there you are, you troubler, of Israel. That, that's how the kings usually felt about the prophets. They were troublers, agitators, irritators, instigators. They got under the skin. These are all good ways of describing a prophet. You see, prophets speak their minds. They feel passionate about a cause because God has put that in them, and they don't pull punches. They speak boldly. They speak publicly. They speak often critically. Oftentimes, it's the prophet that speaks to power. Rarely is there any confusion about where the prophet stands or what they're trying to communicate, and it's rarely comfortable. Prophets rarely exist in the mainstream. They usually are voices calling out from the margins, and furthermore, they're marginalized by the mainstream. Society, power, tends to push the prophet away, attempts to silence the prophet, attempts to, to belittle and undermine the prophet because we don't want to hear what they have to say to us. Rachel Held Evans says, prophets are weirdos. More than anyone else in Scripture, they remind us that those odd ducks shouting from the margins of society may see things more clearly than the political and religious leaders with the inside track. We ignore them at our own peril. If you ask a a prophet to think practically 
I mean, to be reasonable, to be patient. They might just laugh in your face or explode in anger. They are not practical thinkers. If there's a wrong that needs to be named, it will be named. If there's a wrong that needs to be fixed, they demand that it be fixed now. And if you find their message uncomfortable, so be it. That's your problem. If you think the prophet's demands are unreasonable, too bad for you. Get over it. Furthermore, prophets tend to be visionaries. They, they tend to see things both as they are and as they should be. While most of us live in a certain degree of denial and complacency, the prophet sees what's wrong. They see the injustice. They see what most of us overlook or attempt to ignore. But they don't just see the problem. They also see what could be, what can be, what should be, what God wants there to be. Regardless of opposition, regardless of the consequences they might face, regardless of who's offended, in the prophet's mind, what they see is right, and right is right. If lies are being told, lies have to be confronted. If there's truth to be told, it must be spoken, and the wrong must be confronted and corrected. Prophets rarely give up. They rarely shut up until they are shut up or until they're killed. Think of Jesus standing over Jerusalem saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stoned the prophets, how I've longed to gather you in my arm like a, a mother hen gathers her chicks. Did you catch the line, you who stone the prophets? Later in Jeremiah, in chapter 10, 8 and following, Jeremiah explains this, this challenge of God placing a message that is not popular he says, every time I open my mouth, I cry out and say, violence and destruction. The Lord's word has brought me nothing but insult and injury constantly. I thought, I'll forget him, the Lord. I'll no longer speak in his name. But there's an intense fire in my heart trapped in my bones. I'm drained trying to contain it. I'm unable to do it. You hear what he's saying? That even though it's hard to be a prophet, it's unpopular to be a prophet, there's a lot of rejection being a prophet. There's a price to be paid to be a prophet. He says, when I keep my mouth shut, it just, it tortures me. I have to speak the word that God has put in my heart, I have to communicate what must be communicated. Recently, some of us have been reading Steve Harper's book, Holy Love. He describes the work of the prophet as calling out, calling up, and calling forth. I love that uh, description. Calling out sin and injustice. Calling up. Our, our better angels, what, what we're called to be and do, our potential. 
calling forth, what is possible, what needs to be, calling out, calling up, and calling forth. Furthermore, a, a prophet always operates from a place of urgency. They not only see what's broken, they not only see what's possible, but they know that it needs to be addressed now. There is no tomorrow for, for delay, for waiting, a, a better, you know, if, put off till tomorrow, what, what you could do today. There, there's just none of that with a prophet. It's like what Dr. Martin Luther King referred to as the, the fierce urgency of now. For the prophet, slow is unacceptable. Waiting is not an option. Dr. King once said, we are now faced with the fact that tomorrow is today. We are confronted with the fierce urgency of now. There is such a thing as being too late. I, I hear that spirit and the protest we saw these, this summer and, and the Black Lives Matter movement and the call to address finally historic injustices in our, in our society and our systems against people of color. For the prophet, both the biblical prophet of the Old Testament, but I would argue that for, for prophets throughout history, there are two main concerns. One is idolatry and one is injustice. Now, in ancient times, biblical times, Israel was surrounded by many nations that worshiped other gods. And so idolatry in its traditional form of a an actual carved idol representing a god, was a real possibility. They encountered it often. Now remember, Israel was called, we are called to live in a particular covenant relationship with God. Part of that covenant is the Ten Commandments. And remember what the first two commandments are. You shall have no other gods before me. First commandment. You shall not make idols Commandment number two from Exodus 20. Now, we don't struggle probably in that same way today. Most of us aren't considering uh, uh, buying an idol and worshiping it in our homes or, or going to another religion. But in those days, gods were considered to be local, geographic, regional. And, and most of the gods were associated with something to do with nature, Fertility, rain, sun. So just imagine you live in a particular place. You're an Israelite. You worship the one true God, but you notice that the neighbor's crop is doing pretty well, and they worship that particular idol. Or maybe you're trying to have a baby, or maybe you need your flock to, to be a little more proactive in their reproduction. You might have that temptation to keep worshiping your God, but, but what harm could it be to drop off an offering over at the, the other temple or for the other God? That temptation to find another solution, to lean into another resource, to trust something other than the one true God is idolatry. And while you may not uh, worship a, a, a stone idol or an idol made of wood, 
just today, today, just as in the past, we still worship idols. Anytime we trust something, we lean into something more than God, be it money, be it a particular philosophy, be it our, our standing in the community, be it a person who affirms us, be it our bank account, our investment portfolio, be it a, a substance, an addiction, whatever it might be, if I rely on that more than I rely on God, then I have succumbed to idolatry. There's a lot of idolatry in our world today. There's a lot of idolatry in our modern culture. So that's one concern of the prophets. The other is a timeless concern. That's the concern of justice. Micah 6.8. God has told you what is good and what the Lord requires from you to do justice, to embrace faithful love, to walk humbly with your God. For ancient Israel, to do justice meant to to give special care and concern to the most vulnerable of society, the marginalized of society. In biblical terms, we often hear about the widow, the orphan. They had no legal rights. They, They had no way of supporting themselves. The alien, the foreigner, the, the newcomer to our community. It often included those with with physical ailments who who no longer were able to work. God said, we will treat those people fairly with justice. They will have an opportunity to thrive in our community, in our nation, just like everyone else. Liberation theologians call this God's preferential option for the poor. You you may recall, we talked about some of this before Israel entered into the promised land, that great gift that God gave them. God said back in Deuteronomy 15, 11 and following, I'm giving you this command. You must open your hand generously to your fellow Israelites, to the needy among you, and to the poor who will live with you in the land. But Israel failed to live up to that expectation, just as all of the, 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 the societies, the governments, the nations of the world have throughout history, including to this day. Generation after generation, power holders have grown in power. The privileged have gained extra privilege. The rich become more rich, while the powerless lose power while the underprivileged lose privilege, while the poor seem to get poorer. And prophets of every generation just won't stand for it because God won't stand for it. God warned in Deuteronomy 10, 17 and following, the Lord your God is the God of all gods, the Lord of all lords, the great and mighty, the awesome God who doesn't play favorites and doesn't take bribes, He enacts justice for orphans and widows and loves immigrants, giving them food and clothing. That means you must also love immigrants because you were immigrants in Egypt. The prophet, remember, is a visionary. They see the world as it's supposed to be. It says, Marcus Borg describes, the dream of God is a social and political vision of a world of justice and peace 
in which human beings do not hurt or destroy, oppress or exploit one another. Now, you may have picked up in the sermon that I'm referring both to the prophets of the Old Testament and I'm speaking of prophets in the present tense, prophets then and prophets now. That's because God never stopped calling forth prophets. didn't end in the Old Testament. And as long as there is idolatry in our world, as long as there is injustice against the poor in this world, and there's plenty, the call of the prophet will continue. I've been reflecting this week as I've been preparing the sermon of of the prophets who've lived in my own lifetime and inspired me. I think of Dr. Martin Luther King. I think of Senator John Lewis, their role in the in the civil rights movement. I think of John Lewis and his good trouble. I think of young Greta Thornburg in Kenya's Wangari Muta Mathai, who plants trees in Kenya. And both of them reminding us of the perils of global warming. I think of Catholic women of faith, nuns who've joined uh, convents and others, Mother Teresa, Sister Joan Chittister, Dorothy Day, Sister Helen Prejean. I think of Latinos and Latinas who lived under oppressive rules like Oscar Romero and Pope Francis and the Damas de Blancos of Cuba who, pre- who, who protest every week in white the illegal, the unfair, the unjust imprisonment of their husbands and sons. I think of Dr. William Barber and the Poor People's Movement. I think of Malala Yousafzai and her global fight for women's rights. I think of the, the, the recent movements, the protests of Black Lives Matter, the anti-racist movements, writers like Ibram X. Kendi. I think of those students from Parkland, Florida, who rose up following the massacre at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. They got politically involved and they stood strong in the face of the NRA and others fighting for stricter gun laws so that no more school children might die because of guns. I think of our friend Steve Harper who has stood up for the place for LGBTQ people in the church at a personal cost to himself. These are modern-day prophets, and they remind me of the biblical promise that the spiritual gift of prophecy is still given to the church. Romans 12, 6 says, We have different gifts that are consistent with God's grace. If your gift is prophecy, you should prophesy. I, I can't help but wonder, Who are the prophets among us? That is a spiritual gift still being given to the church. Who at First Church are our prophets? And are we listening to them? But those are the individuals, those who have the the unique prophecy. There is also a general call of prophecy for all Christians. When a Christian is baptized or received into the church by profession of faith or, or when we have confirmation, there are, there are two questions that are asked. 
Do you renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness, reject the evil powers of this world, and repent of your sin? Do you accept the freedom and power God gives you to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves? You may or may not be called specifically to be a prophet, but there is a general prophetic commitment that every one of us make by virtue of our baptism and our place in the church. In a sense, we're all part of a prophetic community. We're all called to live our lives prophetically, all of us, no exceptions. And so I end this message with a quote from one of my favorite authors, Henry Nouwen, a Catholic priest who, who I think was probably one of the most gentle persons you might ever meet. And yet he challenges us to accept the call of the prophet. Hear these words. You are Christian only so long as you constantly pose critical questions to the society you live in. So long as you emphasize the need of conversion both for yourself and for the world. So long as you in no way let yourself become established in the situation of the world. So long as you stay unsatisfied with the status quo and keep saying that a new world is yet to come. You are Christian only when you believe you have a role to play in the realization of the new kingdom. And when you urge everyone you meet with holy unrest to make haste so that the promise might soon be fulfilled. So long as you live as a Christian, you keep looking for a new order, a new structure, a new way of life. That's the call of the prophet. Will you accept it?